This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. First, we want to get right to Jeff Semple, uh, Global News Europe Bureau Chief, and he is on the line uh, with us now, so we want to get right to him to find out what the latest is in Russia. Hello, Jeff. How are you today? Hi, not too bad, Scott. Thank you for taking the the time to join us, Jeff. We greatly appreciate this. Uh, Give us an update. What can you tell us uh, about the state of St. Petersburg right now? Well, right now, uh, St. Petersburg and certainly its metro system remains in a state of lockdown. They have shut down the entire train system, and the investigators are scrambling now to try try and piece together what happened a little bit earlier today. What we do know is that an explosion struck inside the metro system of St. Petersburg, which, of course, is Russia's second city, just as the train was pulling out of the station. We've seen some photographs taken from witnesses inside that show the train door completely blown out. It shattered to pieces and a number of people lying on the ground. We know that the death toll, which has been fluctuating a bit, uh, depending on different official reports, but it sounds like around 10 people were killed in the blast and dozens more were injured. And certainly it could have been a lot worse. The explosion happened at around 2.30 local time, so not during rush hour, though. Still a very busy train. St. Petersburg metro station, one of the busiest in the world, uh, even busier than, say, the TTC in Toronto. Now, officials have not said much in terms of the cause Yet, however, they have Russian security officials posted on their website in just the last few minutes. In fact, they have launched what they describe as a terrorist investigation. And certainly all signs point to the, to the prospect that this may have been an attack, Scott. What about a, a second device that had been found? Have you heard anything about that that had been uh, obviously uh, neutralized? Any thought or any more uh, information on that? That's right. We, in fact, uh, the, certainly the biggest factors pointing to the potential of an attack here is the fact that they found, according to Russian security sources, a second explosive device that had failed to ignite just a short distance away from where the explosion happened. And Russian media are reporting that at the explosion site itself, officials found remnants of an explosive device that had been filled with shrapnel and apparently, according to reports, hidden inside a briefcase on that train. Now, the Russian media have, in fact, just published what they say is a CCTV image of the suspect, the man that police are looking for at this hour. The alleged bomber is uh, has a large beard, appears to be wearing a black hat. Now, we should stress, of course, that there's been no official confirmation about that yet. But Russian President Vladimir Putin was, in fact, in St. Petersburg a little bit earlier today on a previously scheduled meeting with the Belarusian president, and Vladimir Putin did give a short statement saying, expressing his condolences, of course, to the families of the victims, and also saying that they were investigating all causes, including terrorism. And you know, it's worth noting, Russia's transit system has been targeted in terrorist attacks before, though it had been a few years. The latest back in 2010, another in 2009, both cases, dozens of people killed. Uh, but this would certainly, if, if proven to be a terrorist attack, would be the first of its kind, certainly in, in recent memory, to strike St. Petersburg, Scott. So uh, there's nothing to believe that this was a suicide bomber. The suspect apparently dropped briefcase, walked away. Is that what we're alleging at this point? That seems to be the working theory. But again, we haven't heard much in terms of official confirmation of that, only that they are now calling this a terrorist investigation. And they are apparently looking for this suspect, the man I described in the CCTV image. So presumably they have information to believe that he was not killed in the blast himself, but that he may still be on the loose and may potentially be planning 
further attacks. Certainly the second device that they found and were able to disarm a short distance away would suggest there was the potential for a second attack at least and possibly more to come. So St. Curtis, Petersburg, as I say, remains in a state of lockdown right now. No group has claimed responsibility for what appears to be an attack, uh, though I certainly there are, you know, I think a lot of people would point their fingers at a number of the Islamist extremist groups that are based in the North Caucasus region, uh, which have carried out attacks on Russia before. And also, Russia had a very large number of its citizens that who have believed to have fled to take part in the war in Syria, and it has been an ongoing concern among Russian security officials that some of them might potentially return to Russia and try and plan an attack on home, home soil. Now, again, all of this remains speculation at this point, but these certainly will be the main lines of inquiry that Russian officials are working with as they try to piece together what happened. Uh, Jeff Semple is with us, Global News Europe Bureau Chief. Jeff, what does this say, the fact that it appears that this person walked away? Could that mean, uh, could that lead us more to domestic terrorism as opposed to, you know, we've certainly heard of past terrorism attacks where, you know, the people are going down no matter what? Well, that's that's certainly right. I mean, we saw that. I mean, I'm speaking to you now from London, and we saw that just last month where, you know, these attackers who are inspired by Islamic extremism uh, are clearly willing to sacrifice their own lives in an attack, and that obviously makes it very difficult to defend from when people are willing to blow themselves up to kill other people. In this case, as you say, if the man managed to get away, and we don't know that for certain yet, but assuming that the you know they are indeed looking for the suspect on that CCTV footage, then it would suggest indeed that this person you know clearly maybe it doesn't have all the hallmarks of an attack inspired by the so-called Islamic State, for example. Well, they tend to want to be martyrs and kill themselves in the attacks. But again, we're only speculating, of course, at this point in the absence of information. And the Kremlin, of course, known for keeping a very tight lid on information in general and wanting to control the message regardless of the topic. And so I think we can likely expect not to hear too much from the Kremlin in the coming hours and expect a very heavy-handed response as well from Russian security forces. How is this playing in Russia with Russian people? Well, from what we've seen, um, I think, you know, Russians, and they are not unlike a lot of Europeans, we're sort of bracing for this kind of thing. I mean, we've sort of... Uh, the unfortunate reality is that we're getting used to hearing these headlines, aren't we? Whether it's an attack in Brussels, in Paris, or in London, like we saw last week. And I think Russians, you know, for many years were were the target of terrorist attacks. Though, so as I say, in the last sort of seven, six or seven years have been largely spared a, a terrorist attacks like the one we appear to have seen today. But I think Russians in general were bracing for something like this, felt it was only a matter of time. Uh, and many of them, I think, are, you know, from, what, from the coverage we've seen, um, from our vantage point in London, appear to be sort of going about their business. Uh, but certainly St. Petersburg and the metro station remain locked down. And um, I think, you know, well, they'll, they'll, they'll try and open that as soon as possible. But the prospect of having potentially this attacker on the loose is obviously, you know, creating high tensions in that city. The prospect that a man, the attacker in this case, it appears may still be on the loose and may indeed, well, be planning another attack. Uh, certainly North Americans have their perception of what is going on in Russia, especially with what's going on south of the border with Trump and so on and so forth, almost like Russia is toying with the U.S. What about the unrest in Russia? You know, I mean, we've seen reports of rioting in the past several weeks and such. What's, what's life like there now? Is it unsettling? 
Well, I think you know you mentioned those uh, those two protests that we saw uh, last weekend and, and the weekend before. Large numbers of people, young people, uh, protests that seem to have really caught the Kremlin by surprise. And it's unusual, as we know, to hear about large-scale protests in a country that has a reputation for cracking down on dissenting voices. Certainly there were a number of arrests over the weekend from people who were attending that protest there. And we are sort of the picture that was painted of a number of these protests were were of younger people. And generally, you know, older Russians tend to watch the TV news and, you know, the TV news largely controlled in that country by the Kremlin. But this younger generation of Russians we've been hearing more about who, you know, like younger generations elsewhere in the West, you know, grow up not watching traditional news um, like parents did, but getting information elsewhere from social media and the like. So it's an interesting moment in in Russian history, certainly notwithstanding all the stuff you alluded to with, of course, the relationship with the White House and Donald Trump and questions lingering there. But I think, you know, Vladimir Putin, we are literally, you know, less than a year now um, before new presidential elections, with many people, of course, expecting Vladimir Putin to run and win again. We're also sort of seeing this movement sort of bubbling just below the surface. It seems to be sort of the younger generations of Russians who are, taking chances, holding protests in a way that they hadn't previously. That does sort of suggest there might be sort of, this, like again, the sort of bubbling unrest just beneath the surface. You know, I've been to Russia before, spoken to younger Russians there. Many of them, you know, do feel strongly about politics, but are also afraid to take a stand. But obviously, you know, the numbers that we saw over the past couple of weeks would suggest that might be changing. But whether a terrorist attack, you know, if, this is, if, that's exa- if that is indeed what we saw today, may, in fact, play into the hands of a leader like Russian President Vladimir Putin, as we've seen in past cases, certainly in France, where, you know, that country remains under a state of emergency. And in a time of, of after a terrorist attack, people become very afraid, of course, and tend to sort of look towards a strong man like Vladimir Putin to keep them safe. So, this, you know, the implications of this will, you know, have to wait and see. But one could surmise that um, a terrorist attack in terms of politics might actually play into the hands of Russian President Putin. How will this affect policy in Syria? Will anything change there? I mean, what are the chances of of these two being directly related? Well, I think, I think again, I mean, as I alluded to before, there were a large number of, of Russians. I I can't think of the number off the top of my head, but it was proportionately much larger than what we see from other European countries, where Russian citizens were packing up and going to Syria to join the fight either for or against uh, the so-called Islamic State and Syrian dictator Bashar al-Assad. Now, Russian support for the war in Syria has remained relatively high, and I think, you know, it, it sort of it, it instilled a lot of nationalist fervor within Russians. So if this was indeed a response to Russia's intervention in Syria, if this attack was indeed a response to that, it would be interesting to see how that plays out in terms of Russian public opinion, because you could see on one hand that it might actually harden Russian attitudes to take, you know, a stronger stand and to sort of reaffirm their intervention against, you know, the threat that's caused by Islamic extremism. On the other hand, of course, people may wonder whether, you know, it's worth having a fight elsewhere in the world because, you know, they're paying the consequences of and and I think, you know, Russia and the Kremlin certainly has been has been worried about something like this, an attack on home soil that might soften its support, uh, public support for the war in Syria and Russia's intervention in it. All right, last question, Jeff. Uh, does this change the war on terror from a world perspective? How does the rest of the world view this? Well, I think, you know, unfortunately, uh, this is just, you know, 
yet another example of, of a terrorist attack targeting soft targets like like uh, like, a, like a train station. You know, we saw it in last week in London with a you know that that um, attacker driving his car up onto the sidewalk of Westminster Bridge. We saw it over Christmas in Berlin with another vehicle charging up onto the sidewalk and, and crashing and plowing into a Christmas market. So I think, you know, probably the more we hear about these attacks, the more public opinion, according to opinion polls, shifts into the support area of wanting to support intervention to stop groups like the so-called Islamic State. I mean, you know, even public opinion polls I've seen from Canada would suggest that the more we hear about groups like ISIS targeting soft targets, targeting innocent civilians, the more people tend to come on side with, you know, the the war on terror and, and with support increased foreign intervention to take out the group and to stop ISIS from being able to launch attacks across Europe and North America. Jeff Semple has been with us, Global News, Europe Bureau Chief, and of course, watch Global News tonight to find out the latest happening in Russia. Jeff, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Thanks, Scott. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. Some uh, interesting things coming into the news today in regard to uh, electricity. Uh, The first being that uh, now uh, results of Ontario's first cap-and-trade auction are expected today. I still can't decode what all of that means. Uh, As well, uh, May 1st marks the deadline for people, uh, I guess, to start getting cut off from... (laughs) from hydro again to talk more i shouldn't be laughing there's nothing laughing about nothing nothing to laugh about here uh tom adams is with us other than of course the way this is all handled by our government uh tom adams independent energy and environmental consultant is with us and on the line now hello tom how are you today hey scott this would all be funny if it wasn't so exactly (laughs) if it wasn't if it wasn't us personally living through it all uh Let's start with the disconnections. Obviously, there was a big stink about this over the course of the winter because people were being left out in the cold that couldn't pay their electricity bills. Uh, So obviously, uh, they stopped doing that. That's all uh, to commence again May 1st. Will this be another hot issue over the summer? This is, uh, you know, we're we're back to the problem, right? Um, uh, The politicians got all, uh, uh, you know, all up in arms about uh, uh, disconnections uh, uh, that uh, um, probably if history's any guide uh, as soon as the politicians get excited about something like that uh, what what we see is arrears accounts at utilities that, uh, that jump up customers that are just you know on the verge they're they're uh, they're they're wondering you know what they're going to do. They're in trouble. Um, they're considering not paying their power bill. Then they see the politicians on TV, uh, uh, you know, screaming about how no no customer should be cut off. Uh, that pushes some people over the edge. They, um, uh, you know, they they feel like they can get away with it for a few months. Um, uh, uh, and uh, you know, I'm just, there are sad cases out there where people don't understand the consequences that arise from that. Um, of course, they you know they, they start to accrue penalty clauses, and uh, if they do get disconnected, then they have a reconnection uh, fee. And often, uh, utilities with account uh, serving accounts where customers had payment problems, utilities will demand security deposits. Um, uh, so, the, the, 
you know, we a, a customer was in trouble to start with, of course. Um, uh, you, you, you don't fall behind on your power bill if everything's okay. Um, uh, but then if you do fall behind, you're in much worse shape. Uh, and, and this is one of the things that makes me so nervous every time the politicians get involved in the whole disconnection process. Um, uh, in many cases, they make the the situation of of uh, customers that are in financial distress situations worse, not better, uh, by these careless interventions and these blank rules about how does how does it make it worse, not better? Well, if you if you do fall behind um, uh, in your payments, your overall cost of power goes up substantially. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, like the, the 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 cheapest way to keep yourself on the system um, is is to have regular payments. Uh, you know, of course, right? Yeah. You know, make, making the payments by the deadline, um, uh, and it, so you know, and and, and customers you know that, or, or you know, or, or should know that. Um, it, it's part of the connection agreement when you sign up for a utility account. Of course, all the you know the fine print is in there about what happens if you do fall behind. So anyway, it, it, the what, what we've seen historically is that utilities generally had informal moratoriums on winter disconnection. Um, of course, they really don't want to disconnect customers, and they, and especially in winter, um, uh, you know, it's a, it's a serious problem. Um, but having the option out there that in 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 particular cases. You know, um, uh, if they've got a, a, a particular account that's very problematic, having when the utility has the right to disconnect, um, it helps to keep a more disciplined process here. What what customers need to appreciate uh, about the disconnection question is that um, uh, when a uh, a utility has bad debt. So you know if they're you know they're accumulating a, um, uh, accounts receivable from bad from uh, um, customers that are falling behind. The utilities never out any money. It, it, those the cost of bad debt is rolled into the cost of service. This is something that it, we've you know in the normal course of business there's always going to be a little bit of uh, of, of bad debt on the utility accounts. They're allowed to recover all that cost. So when utility bad debt uh, um, issues arise, and and especially you know when the politicians get involved and they start you know passing these careless rules that we see come out of Queens Park every once in a while about you know no disconnections allowed, that causes bad debt costs to to spike upwards, and that impacts all the customers that are paying their their accounts. They do have their accounts current. The, in in a properly functioning system, the Ontario Energy Board, rather than Queens Park, 
would be administering the rules around uh, disconnection. So Is another uh, another Band-Aid solution. Uh, has has the protocol changed since what happened over the winter? Is it different now if you are disconnected? Has the protocol or or, or any of the process changed? It, it, um, the, the reconnection process is, it has has not changed. Um, and so what's what's about to happen here is we're we're um, uh, closing out the winter season. Uh, uh, we shift into the summer rules. Uh, those customers that have fallen behind, you know, some of them may have just kind of forgotten about their utility bills because they, you know, they've gone for months without paying them, and the power's still on, right? Um, uh, of course, they're accumulating. Some of those customers are accumulating very large. Um, uh, liabilities with the utility, and you know, as soon as the um, the winter period concludes, the utilities are going to be sending out notices and and, and going through the disconnection process. That th- those customers are, are are going to you know, there is going to be some sad cases out there of people who really are now in a in a much worse situation. They're facing. Uh, 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 the prospect of disconnection. They've got penalty fees that are already starting to accumulate, interest charges, um, uh, and they, and they may be called upon by their utilities, the distribution utilities, for security deposits. Which you know, of course, in this situation where you've got a customer who's already in financial distress, the security deposit can just you know be even a, a more serious problem. Anyway, it, it, you know, the, the, these, these Band-Aids are, are so easy to talk about, but you know, they, they, sometimes it works out very badly. All right, uh, another big issue today, results of Ontario's first cap-and-trade auction expected today. How important is today in the whole cap-and-trade plan? Is, does this concern anybody? Again, I'm still having a hard time decoding all of this or how it's even going to work. How important is today? Yeah, uh, well, today's a big deal. Um, uh, th- this is the you know the the first uh, uh, auction results from Ontario. We've seen in California recently auctions uh, going very badly, um, uh, where there's the um, uh, the the, the um, uh, plans of all the governments that set these things up that thought they were going to have active markets, lots of participants. Um, uh, you know, significant liquidity in those markets. It's turning out to not be the case. The, the uh, Ontario government has been uh, planning all along that they, that cap and trade is going to bring in something like 1.8 billion dollars. Um, uh, if that money does not materialize, a lot of that money is already spent. Um, they've made commitments. Um, uh, to you know where, where that cash is supposed to go if it doesn't uh, materialize, I think the Ontario government could find themselves in a lot of trouble. Is there any obligation for any of this to materialize? What equals good? What equals bad in this discussion? Um, well, the, the <laughs> I, I, I mean, there are people that are you know hoping for the the cap and trade auction to just crater yeah uh, um and and, uh, and you know of course if you're a company that has uh, um 
you know, uh, is you know required to get these permits if the the market goes down and they can get the permits a lot cheaper. Um, uh, that 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 solves your problem. Um, uh, you know, it, it mitigates your problem. Um, uh, the, the the on the other side, of course, the provincial governments saw uh, the cap and trade program as a revenue tool um, uh, it, that was going to be bringing in a whole lot of cash, um, uh, and 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 they, you know, just already spent that money, uh, a, a good chunk of it. Um, so the, um, uh, you know, the outcome from the, from the point of view of the provincial government is, is really uh, very uh, significant for them. I, I, I find myself, you know, personally, I, I, I don't think this cap and trade thing is going to work. Uh, I don't think it was the right way to go. Um, I think it's going to, you know, so I'm not going to cry a lot of tears if the uh, auction results come back with low volumes and low prices. Well, if that is the case, Tom, then what happens? I mean, what happens if no one's interested in this? It almost seems like we're creating a false industry, a false economy. Oh, oh like the, the whole product here that, that's being bought and sold uh, are government-created permits um, uh, and the, the, as the Auditor General has pointed out um, uh, in a lot of detail, the accounting rules behind all of this are nightmarishly complicated. Um, many of the accounting details are not figured out, um, at, like, for example, how Ontario's system integrates with what the federal government says it's going to do. Um, how Ontario permits match up with uh, permits in our trading partners within something called the Western uh, um, uh, Climate Initiative. Um, again, the accounting rules are not figured out for that. So, I mean, this, uh, <laughs> this, all of the kind of the 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 the, the, the the factors that allowed the green energy program to fly off the rails, we're seeing all of that stuff repeat itself in the cap-and-trade world. So uh, in this article, it stated that other provinces are paying attention to this. Other provinces are watching to see uh, what works, what doesn't work. Was there any advantage for Ontario to rush into this and be first? Other than, like, It just seems that we've done all, made all the mistakes and we're the guinea pigs here. What, what was the advantage to us jumping into this the way we did? And is Trudeau watching any of this and recognizing what Wynne has failed at? Yeah, I, I, I think the, 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 your, your point about uh, other levels of government watching this carefully, including the federal government, that's, I think that's a key point. Um, uh, you know, one, one thing to uh, appreciate just in the history of this thing, one of the reasons the provincial government got uh, um, very heavily committed to going down the road of this cap-and-trade program with the Western Climate Initiative was uh, – Provincial government trying to kind of stick a, you know, a, a stick a sharp stick in the face of the federal government at the time. The Harper government wasn't keen on doing this, and so you know Ontario wanted to distinguish itself from the federal government. Now we've got a federal government that's got a, a, a climate program. They 
um, uh, and 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 now it doesn't look like Ontario's program dovetails very neatly with what uh, um, is expected to happen on a federal level. Um, uh, As at the same time, the Western Climate Initiative was at one time looking like it had a lot of momentum, that there was a lot of states and provinces that were going to sign up with it. Now it's just three of us, basically. It's Quebec. Uh, um, and, and and obviously with the election of Trump, that's certainly not moving in that direction. Um, the, the thing that just seems odd about all of this is, and we've talked about this before, instead of talking about our kids, the environment, or instead of talking about our kids or their health care or education or jobs or the economy, we're talking about a self-inflicted problem. We're talking about a self-inflicted electricity wound. And at what point will other leaders in other jurisdictions say this is less about the environment and more this has been more of a lesson on how to shoot yourself in the foot and and lose the next election oh oh yeah oh yeah I, like ontario's ha- ha- got a you know disastrous electricity policy um uh, it's just obvious to anybody so are other politicians looking at this and saying, well, here's what you do for the environment or here's what we don't do because this is going to get us kicked out of power? Sure, sure. Alberta is an example, right? They, they've got a very uh, pro-green government that really wants to uh, get off coal. And uh, the first thing that comes out of their mouth when they talk about what they're going to do in Alberta is we're not going to repeat the mistakes of Ontario. Notice that Alberta is not in the Western Climate Initiative, right? So Ontario shot itself in both feet. We've got the, the cap-and-trade thing, and we've got the green energy thing on the electricity file and on, you know, home heating, natural gas, uh, uh, road fuels, diesel and gasoline, all that stuff. It's a terrible mess. Will Trudeau, so will Trudeau make the same mistakes that Wynne is making? I mean, he's taken a lot of her people. Uh, they were certainly arm-in-arm uh, arm through the election campaign. What is the, wh- how is he viewing this mistake now? Well, you know, he, he's, he's a pretty ambiguous character. Um, uh, he's been approving some pipelines, right? Um, uh, he's, he's, um, he's talking a big game about, um, uh, renewable energy and energy innovation and all that kind of stuff. Um, uh, but there's, you know, by and large, it's a kind of a, a judged on results as opposed to the, 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 the lingo and the talking points. He's a pretty middle of the road kind of guy. Mm. And, so these extreme um, uh, policies that have been attempted here in Ontario, you know, this radical transformation of our uh, uh, kind of social and economic uh, life with respect to energy, uh, it doesn't look to me like, like Trudeau's up for that kind of wrenching, uh, um, very controversial kind of policies. Will Trump be the out for a lot of Canadian politicians who have promised a greener world? And now, obviously, with him being elected and 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 uh, financial responsibilities and businesses lost and such, will Trump be there out in the sense that Trudeau and Wynne can say, you know what, none of this is going to work now because we got a fossil fuel burning pig in the White House. So sorry, I was trying to save the world, and now I can't save the world till we get rid of Trump. 
Yeah, I, 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 my own view is it's too early to to count Trump in uh, uh, on a lot of these major policy initiatives. He's getting so bogged down in some of his issues, uh, um, you know, there that he, he may lose the momentum of uh, his election victory and not be able to to pursue a lot of his ag- aggressive agenda in some of these areas that are just kind of, you know. The things that he promised, but they're 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 not uh, kind of survival issues for his government to the same extent as you know dealing with his problems about uh, interactions with the Russian government and whatnot. So I, I, if 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 Trump was strong and um, and had the you know um, had the ability to move his agenda forward on all these fronts, the, the climate thing would be a, a, a radical change going on, you know, because he's really you know very firmly promised a, a commitment to you know getting off. Obama's clean uh, power plan and all that kind of stuff, right? You know, Trump digs coal, but um, uh, but it, you know, the the coal industry did get a bump after mm. uh, his election victory, but the coal industry is, you know, that that bump has not lasted um, uh, too uh, substantially. It, I mean, the, the stock prices are. Uh, but there's still, I think, a widespread appreciation that the long-term outlook for coal, even in a Trump America, is for a decline. Uh, really quick answer here, uh, Tom. Uh, when will we know if Kathleen Wynne's cap-and-trade uh, sale today is, is, is been, uh, I guess, is working? Well, um, uh, we should have numbers. Um, uh, it's been a long delay in releasing these numbers, and I'm not quite uh, understanding why. Um, uh, you know, the auction results should have been issued at more or less real time. But uh, anyway, so it's a little troubling that there's been this delay. But we, we you know, by close of business, I think there's supposed there is expected to be an announcement. Tom Adams has been with us, independent energy and environmental consultant, talking about cap and trade and as well being disconnected. Tom, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Thank you, Scott. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. Kevin writes, like, what I couldn't believe about... Uh, the Junos, and I enjoy watching it. Um, you know, the kids know more about what's going on than I do. But uh, it's always great to see the Canadian talent and how far we have come. And the show is usually a, a pretty good uh, show. It's got lots of, there's only like six awards. The rest of it is all, um, you know, uh, acts and, and, and songs and such. Um, but what I really found was unbelievably irritating when you know, you think about what were the the real focal moments, the real uh, you know high points of this whole show. Uh, I would say uh, the thing with the prime minister and Leonard Cohen, uh, paying tribute to Leonard Cohen. Uh, obviously, what the tragically hip uh, have been through and accepting their awards, and then the finale with Brian Adams at the end. So. Uh, I guess CTV got one right. They didn't cut the prime minister off or anything like that. But the tragically hip one, and considering, you know, the fact that this band is getting so much mention at these awards over the, and above, uh, the, the, you know, the usual cast of suspects that, that win big at these awards lately, 
they cut the guy they cut the guys off short right in the middle of speaking they started into the point where it got a joke where you know you're not really going to cut me off are you i mean are you kidding me like this is the last time this band will ever accept this award the lead singer's dying and ctv cuts them off why why is that why and then at the very, very, and then shortly after that, um, then Russell Peters and Brian Adams have to kill time because Sarah McLaughlin's not ready. And I'm thinking, well, we could have been listening to the Tragically Hip at this point, comment, you know, instead of being cut off. So then they're stretching time and, you know, trying to kill time. And then we lose the other end. They're running the credits during the Brian Adams finale and it's gone before the song's even over. Why? What other piece of brilliant programming does CTV have to air? In a time where traditional media is sucking pond water and completely lost, CTV's the poster child for this. Because the one thing that the, the traditional TV does great and does best is live events, like sports, like entertainment, like award shows. So here is their moment to shine. And instead of carrying it and letting it run over, how many, how often does this happen? Grammys, Oscars, it's award shows. Half a dozen times a year over your structural, stagnant, you know, programming schedule. So here you have a chance to flourish and shine and you shut it down so we can go to match game? You're kidding me, right? You're kidding me you're using the Junos to launch Alec Baldwin's match game? Put match game on late. Don't even air it. Go right to the 11 o'clock news. You know, I think the CBC would have handled this a lot differently. Not that I'm sticking up for the CBC. But I think CTV just totally blew it last night. And here's the one thing that they do well, but they're so fat and over bloated that they can't be nimble enough to adjust their programming schedule on the fly. And instead of airing match game, we should have been able to see the entire show, like the finale or perhaps the speech from the Tragically Hip. So, and here's the other thing. The speech from the Tragically Hip and the finale, those could have all been highlights that they could have shown on their newscasts. Because I would, I would venture that those two events within the show were probably some of the high points of the whole damn show. And CTV chose to go away. Get that, get that crap off the air. We got match game coming up. Oh, my Lord. Are you kidding me? Uh, maybe I'm um, overreacting to all of this. But to me, it just shows me how traditional media is just too fat and bloated to be nimble to do the right thing for you, the viewer. And instead, trying to, let's make some money. We got people watching for the Junos. Let's shove Match Game in there. It's going to be big. It's going to be bigger than... Who wants to be a millionaire? Let's bring Regis back. Are you kidding me? 
Uh, let's bring in El, uh, Eric Elper, music publicist, uh, see what his take on all of this was. Hello, Eric. How are you today? Oh, no. Now what am I going to say? <laughs> were, oh, you no. were there. Were you, you were there live, were you not? We were. Uh, I was. I was going back and forth between being in the stadium so I can hear 12,000 screaming kids for Sean Mendez and then going back and forth between that and the media room. And when that moment happened with the tragically hip with uh, Paul Lenguaz and uh, Rob Baker, the media room just took a collective gasp. Yeah. Um, it, to be a fly in the wall at that room when you've got so many cameras and so many hundreds of people working on your show, you have to make that split-second decision on where you're going to go. And it's funny because... While we live in our own little music bubble here in the music industry, there are still a lot of people who don't care about the Junos, who were probably waiting for match games. But just to figure figure out where, where those decisions lie, but that's the beauty sometimes of live television is you show something that maybe wouldn't otherwise happen, and sometimes you allow social media to blow up around you. And I think, unfortunately... That's what's that's what's what's happening today, and it and it's awful because the rest of the show was great, and yeah. I cross my fingers and hope that that wasn't the last time that the Tragically Hip are going to be winning Rock Album of the Year or Group of the Year. Uh, you know what this says to me, Eric, was long before this show even started. Someone said, "I don't care what happens, we ain't running late." We, we got to stick to this. And it's like, you know, you've got to look at one of these things and say, you know what, this could happen, this could happen, or this could happen. And we got to be nimble and ready for it all. I mean, come on. It's not like these guys aren't the biggest game in town. I mean, CTV, like it's, it's not like they're new to this sort of event sort of programming. I, I, I can't believe they let this get away from them. I think everybody, including the CBC, CBC, and every broadcaster around the world wants to to have it both ways. They want the the live event, the excitement, the safety without a net, um, but they also have to adhere to the advertisers and and all the rest of the programming that, that comes across it. And, you know, I, I think it's really easy, and, and you brought it up about, you know, maybe Sarah McLaughlin not being ready. I didn't know that that was happening during that um during that time that Brian Adams and Russell Peters had to kind of stall a little bit, but you know, you're not being prepared for that either. Um, and so while it's easy to say, you know, the next day, while they could have moved on or they could have cut this short or that short, you're going to anger somebody. And as much as we all love the tragically hip, who else are you going to cut? You know, so it's a, it's a, it's Here's who you're going to cut. You're going to cut. You're, you're going to allow yourself some flexibility at the other end, and you're going to tell your newscaster, get ready. You're going to go on 10 or 15 minutes late, or you're going to tell your match game or whatever it is. I mean, come on. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a canned show. You can start and yeah, stop but, this whenever but, you want. But if you're CTV, and I'm not speaking on their behalf, no, I know. I'm, just, I'm, just, I'm just guessing. When you're CTV, you are using match game as your entry into getting the Juno Award audience. And again, you don't mess with the news. You know, you try real hard to... to not go over into that kind of a broadcast. And especially, you know, this kind of harkened back to, I, I think, 
was it the NFL that cut through? Yes, absolutely. Yep. Oh, Bambi? Yep. That, or Heidi? Yeah, it Heidi. Was that was Heidi. It. Yeah, yeah. I don't know if this is as big as it as, as that, but I think in Canada it, it might very well be. And I think that there might be a lot of um, there might be a lot of pit in the stomach people who who work um, really hard and really tirelessly to make sure that nothing like this happens. Um, I, I think that they probably feel um, what we're all feeling today. And I'm not so sure that they would make a different decision, but I know that all they have to do is go online and see, you know, the absolute, you know, torrid of starkiness and anger that people are feeling. So how is this playing the day after? And what do you learn from this? Well, I think when a group like the Tragically Hip, who tends to stay away from controversy as much as possible and focus on the music, when they tweet out hashtag it's my arena, not yours, mm. you know that you have managed to crack the, uh, the, the system and the barriers of, of even a group like the Tragically Hip wanting to comment on something controversial. Um, but I think this morning, um, actually, you know what? You didn't, even have, you didn't even have to wait till people woke up. It happened almost immediately yeah. in the media room with almost every one of the 124 accredited media writing something about that moment. And that should tell you everything about who was watching and the power of influence of making those decisions. I don't envy those people at all, no. that's for sure. I'm glad I'm Eric Alpert. I just had to take people on the red carpet and tweet a lot. But think of this, Eric. I mean, you were in the media room when this happened. You talked about the gasps, like, oh, my God, I can't believe they're doing this. How can there not have been that kind of reaction in the control room where this was being done? Because I think people get paid a lot more money than I do to make those kind of decisions. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I, I, that, that's really just what it, what it comes down to. I have, um, I, I've been around enough control rooms that they have to make that, that, that split-second decision on, on what they're going to do. Um, but that's the power of live television. That's sometimes what you're going to have to kind of bear with and unfortunately it happened last night to one of Canada's best loved bands all right uh obviously that one of the most memorable moments uh another one uh with uh the honoring uh paying tribute to Leonard Cohen with the prime minister your thought on that on the prime minister and his wife showing up one of the greatest Juno moments ever that Mm -hmm. I've ever seen um you could hear a pin drop at the Canadian Tire Center. You could hear a pin drop in the media room. It turned out that when Adam Cohen went to the media room afterwards on Saturday, after uh, Leonard Cohen won for, um, for Album of the Year, um, he told us that they were trying to get feist on Leonard's last album, You Want It Darker. But unfortunately, scheduling um, kept getting in the way, and it never happened. Hmm. So that's where you have that that possible special relationship between Feist and Leonard Cohen. Um, that was an astounding, somber performance, mm-hmm. um, pretty much right up there with uh, Sarah McLaughlin's uh, speech um, yeah. in a completely different side of it where you had people standing up and cheering about how much she loved Canada and that their girls and, and women matter yeah. and where kindness matters. Uh, we all, uh, I mean, that was astounding from her. Uh, do we know anything more on the health of Gord Downey? He obviously wasn't there last night. Um, not any new information. Um, there were kind of rumors on the red carpet that actually Gord Downey was going to be the surprise performance at the end of it, and that turned out obviously not to be true. Mm-hmm. Um, I do know that there are songs that have been completed or near completion. 
of a potential possible new tragically hip album coming down but until the official word comes down from that camp um it's pretty much safe to say that man machine poem might be the last record uh i saw gord earlier uh maybe about four months ago at a free the children we day that was in toronto and um he looked as good as as can be um and i i don't think anybody knows so much on the day-to-day health but i think how you saw him last night which is very, very recent. Probably that was filmed uh, in the last week or two. Uh, the usual stars, Absent, uh, Drake's, Weekend, all of that. What, what's your take on that? A, a different tone than I'm thinking what a lot of people thought. Um, you know what? It, when you have, I think, the caliber of artists that were at the Junos, whether it's Alicia Cara or Sean Mendez or Buffy St. Marie or Feist, uh, Brian Adams, Russell Peter, I mean, all of those can sellout stadiums and arenas around the world. Um, it's funny because Canada's always like this. We always manage to get in the, the people who aren't there as if it's a lack of respect to the country. It might be their thoughts on the Juno show, but keep in mind that like Sean Mendez, who is probably the most in-demand person uh, on the planet when it comes to music, this is his third straight Juno appearance. Um, so I think you had a great mixture of the future of Canadian music with Shawn Mendes coming from Vine um, and Alicia Cara at age 13 putting on cover songs of, uh, on YouTube and Ruth B coming from Vine as well. All three artists coming from social media. Um, that bodes really, really well that there might be a 14 or 15-year-old out there watching saying, if I can do this, we can do this too. Uh, talk a little bit uh, how far the Junos have come. Um, you know, started with uh, you know Walt back in 1964 and RPM magazine and such, and and obviously, you know, ha- has evolved from there. Uh, you know, even during the 80s uh, when it seemed that that Canadian music was really taking off. I mean, now we're in the stratosphere when you think about it. We're not even close. I mean, to to where we were. This has gone beyond, I think, anybody's expectations. When you have seven of the top ten songs on the Billboard Hot 100 back in October being from Canadian artists. When the Junos first started all those years ago, Walt Grievous' mother made sandwiches for the industry who voted. And it wasn't until, you know, I think in the early 70s when, you know, they, they had 250 people in the industry come and celebrate it. And it wasn't until after that where they opened it up to the general public when Andy Kim won the very first Juno that was televised. I mean, certainly they've come a long way. Television has come a long way. Social media has gone into the stratosphere as well, where you don't even have to be watching the broadcast anymore. You can just follow along that way. But it's definitely a worldwide event when you start to get coverage in newspapers all over the world when somebody like Sean Mendez uh, uh, and Alicia Cara start uh, attending your events. Your thoughts on the hosts? You know, when Michael Bublé canceled, unfortunately, over the, the health of his son, Russell Peters called Karis, which is the organization that takes care of the Juno Awards, called them almost immediately and offered up the ability to host. That shows you the heart that Russell has. And this is a guy that is probably the world's biggest comedian in the last 18 months. Mm-hmm. Um, with Brian Adams playing the straight man, it was almost like an Abbott and Costello routine. <laughs> um, but I think when you get Russell Peters, you should know what you're getting. 
you're going to get a little bit of uh, race jokes. You're going to get a little bit of ethnic jokes. You're going to get a little bit of uh, ageism jokes uh, and hope that he doesn't swear that much. And uh, I think he was fine in form last night, and I think he held himself pretty well considering the high standards that he puts himself on too. Eric Alper has been with his music publicist dissecting the Junos of last night. Eric, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. No problem, man. Always great to talk to you. Thanks so much for having me. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.